Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Wendy Luger, the University Librarian and Dean of Libraries, and it's wonderful to welcome you to what is our 10th annual Pancake Poetry event. It's quite an anniversary. Now, this annual gathering was actually begun years ago, well before 10 years ago, when librarian Marcia Pancake planned a special reading every year during Poetry Month, which is April. And when she retired, we continued the tradition and named the series in her honor. And Marcia, we want to thank you for leading the way. Marcia is here this, e this afternoon with us. <laughs> And we also want to thank her successor, Malika Grant, uh, over there, who is our, <laughs> she's our librarian for English and also African and African American studies, and she organizes this event every year. Now today's program is sponsored by the Friends of the Libraries and is part of the Friends Forum, a series for curious minds. And for those friends who are here today, we really appreciate your commitment. And the rest of you, if you're not a friend, it's time to join. Now, it's a well-known fact that Minnesota has a rich literary tradition and creative output. And I'm gonna put this to the test. How many of you have written a poem outside of a class assignment? Raise your hand and keep it up, keep it up, okay. How many of you have published a memoir or a short story or an essay? Keep your hands up. I want, I want full cumulative effect here. Um, how about, um, let's see, what did I leave off? Uh, a novel, any novel writers? I mean, look at the numbers out there. It's impressive, right? And in addition to writers, Minnesota also boasts a number of publishers who nourish and encourage and fund writers. There's Milkweed Press, Milkweed Editions, Grey Wolf Press, Noden Press, Coffee House, Holy Cow Press, just to name a few. And then there are media like Rain Taxi who promote the hundreds of events and readings each year. And of course, the Loft Literary Center, whose founders list includes today's honored poet, Jim Moore. Now Jim adds his name to a long list of stellar Minnesota pancake poets. We have Jim Lenfesty, Lewis Jenkins, Hyde Erdrich, Ed Bach Lee, Joyce Sutphin, Michael Dennis Brown, Ray Gonzalez, Bao Fee, Margaret Hasse. What a lineup. And here to introduce our most recent poet, please welcome our first pancake poet and Friends of the Library board member, Jim Lenfesty. Jim? Wow, wonderful to see you all here. You're in for a treat. Well, there must have been something in the water, at the water fountain or the coffee pot and the English department at the University of Minnesota in the 1960s. Because a group of scruffy pals, Garrison Keeler, Patricia Hampel, Lewis Hyde, rocketed from there to literary stardom along with their rumpled pal, poet Jim Moore. Jim was the quietest of that remarkable quartet, living today in downtown Minneapolis with his wife, Joanne Verberg, the photographer, teaching poetry at the Hamlin MFA program. 
teaching often in Colorado as well. He just flew back for this. He's still working in Colorado right now and living half a year with Joanne in Spoleto, Italy. Most of what we know personally of this remarkable man, the, a founding spirit of the Loft Literary Center, are a few portraits of him by Joanne, like the one Grace in the cover of his latest collection, Underworld, Underground, new, his new and selected, published by Grey Wolf Press, in which he looks like a street vagrant or a rumpled angel. Uh, in either case, quietly at home among the fallen leaves of autumn. Jim, like most wannabe writers in those university days, studied with the awe that was Berryman, worked on the literary magazine The Lamp and the Spine, and paid homage by visiting Robert Bly's farm in the wild universe of western Minnesota, uh, where he learned the skill of digging a hole for the latrine. Uh, Jim stayed with that humble spading at the Iowa Writers Workshop and through nearly a year in jail, as a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. Jim's contact with real dirt, real people, real things, real history, and all their unexpected and sometimes explosive circumstances taught him to include them, all of them, the rest of us, uh, devoting his life to illuminating the difficult and beautiful facts of life for the rest of us somehow suffused in what I, I can only call a radiant kindness unique to him. Uh, from his first collection of poems, The New Body, published in 1975 by University of Pittsburgh Press, to his later publishing tenure with Milkweed Editions and Grey Wolf Press, plus two glorious fine press editions, uh, one, one writing with Tagore from the luminous The Press at Colorado College. Jim's poetic invisible strings have tied the grief of the world together to its ordinary beauty. Excuse me. <clears throat> like that clump of roses held in the hand of that old West Bank flower seller, Jim once hymned and tied us all together as well. The very first poem in this remarkable new and selected collection makes this astonishing prediction. I want to become thin as a flute song that goes into the delicate inner ear and coils there, holding in balance the lives of everyone I love. It's an honor to welcome that maker of flute songs we cannot forget, Poet Jim Moore. Really beautiful introduction. I do have one small quarrel about the rumpled. <laughs> no, I, I went, because this is a very distinguished re reading series, I did go online to see, uh, to try to pick up some tips from other folks who've read in the series. Actually, I was just looking to see how they dressed. And uh, the older ones tended to wear coats. Uh, the younger ones, just sweaters, so of course I, I wore a sweater. <laughs> now, really beautiful introduction and, and beautiful what you've done for this writing community with your own work and all the, all the uh, multitudes of things you've done, reading series and publishing and everything else. Thank you for that.
lost my little crib sheet about all the people I was going to thank, but I think I've got it all in my head. I definitely want to thank the Pancake Reading Series, the University of Minnesota Libraries. Uh, this is such, it really is a distinguished reading series. I feel really very lucky uh, to be here, and the U of M in general, where I graduated, uh, where I've taught on and off over the years, very appreciated. And uh, I want to thank uh, students from Hamlin and also Hamlin in general for allowing me to teach in their program. Uh, the Colorado College, which has also been a great, great pleasure. Uh, Gray Wolf Press, their 45th anniversary this year. Uh, very lucky, obviously, to be, to be publishing there. And, and The Loft, which has supported my work uh, over many decades. So thank you, one and all. And if I forgot any institution, it's only because I misplaced my list. <laughs> well, I thought I'd begin with, uh, with three poems that are sort of introductory poems, I guess you could say. This one uh, was the last poem in my book, uh, Lightning at Dinner. What do I look like? Clusters of dandelion seeds, spent and beautiful, casting themselves without worry or fear into the very current of air that carries them away from themselves. I have taken a shape that loses itself in the wind, a common weed without parent or child, Everywhere I land, I feather again, again begin without regard to beauty. What do I look like? This lilac-scented, wind-blown, gauzy, cardinal-throated spring. No one need bother tell me ever again what's up ahead. As the purple lilacs feel swollen and full, a sway on their bent stems, so I feel when someone picks me in huge handfuls, puts me in water, and keeps me for as long as I last. Did I thank you all for coming? That was sure as hell on my list. <laughs> a, couple of, a couple of other introductory poems. Only a poet would call a poem called Epitaph an introductory poem, but uh, epitaph. He stole for Scythia, he lived for love, he never got caught. <laughs> and one more introductory, little introductory poem. At 7 a.m., watching the cars on the bridge, everybody's going to work. Well, not me. I'm not going to work. The poet's anthem. <laughs> well, this really isn't good. All my poems are missing. <laughs> I'm serious. All my every single new poem I brought. Nothing there on the chest.
I'll tell you, man, glad I put on that super strong deodorant today because, okay. I'm going to move back and forth a little bit between older poems and new poems. This is a newer poem called Whatever Else. Whatever else, the little smile on the face of the woman listening to a music the rest of us can't hear, and a sky at dawn with a moon of its own. Whatever else, the construction crane high above us, waiting to be told to do our bidding, we who bid and bid and bid. Whatever else, the way cook number one looks with such longing at cook number two. Let's not be too sad about how sad we are. I know about the disappearance of the river dolphins, the sea turtles with tumors. I know about the way the dead don't return no matter how long they take to die in the back of the police car. I know about the thousand ways our world betrays itself. Whatever else, my friend spreading wide his arms looks out at the river and says, after all, what choice did I have? After all, I saw the man walking who'd had the stroke, saw the woman whose body won't stop shaking. I saw the frog in the tall grass boldly telling us who truly matters. I saw the world proclaim itself an unlit vesper candle while a crow flew into the tip of it, sleek, black match burning. <coughs> How to close the great distance between people. Do it over coffee, like fish that appear to be talking, but are really eating to stay alive. I know. That's all right. You can keep it. It's kind of got a battered cover. I'd rather have yours. This is <laughs> <laughs> the least you can do after this. <laughs> Today's meditation, happiness. In the end, all that matters is light and dark and what's not finished between them. As long as he stands back far enough, deeply enough inside the room, he's fine. He gets the point of things, how they come, then must go. But the blue sea beyond the window, it has always done this to him, always forced him further into happiness than he thought he could stand to go. here. <laughs> okay. Um, I also want, wanted to mention that I'm really happy to be reading in the Coles Auditorium. I, I love what they gave to this community, John and Sage, and how fiercely they fought for the arts and gave to the arts. Uh, John actually took a poetry course from me once. Uh, he was, uh, there were eight or nine women, and there was myself and, and John. And uh, the women were in their 20s and 30s, and John was not. He was like in his 70s or so. And uh, I just thought, how is this going to go? And he just went for it. It was really fantastic. And he seemed not to mind being surrounded by younger, younger women. That was all right. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that he really learned anything about poetry, but he just he had this, the exploratory spirit 
And I, I loved that in him and in her and in Sage for sure. All right, today's meditation, another today's meditation, the crucifixion, based on a painting by Tintoretto. It's still going on. It's not even close to being over. The man in pain hanging there, he hasn't got a prayer. He'll go slowly. He'll take hours. This isn't about God. It's anyone who's going down inch by inch and won't be coming back again. There's not a thing we can do to stop it. For centuries, this has been happening. Someone dies slowly, alone, without comfort. No wonder the sky is black behind the dying man, and the ferns a sickly green, and the ground is a dusty, unforgiving slab of cracked earth. This is where we live, and the only God to believe in is the God of suffering, the man or woman bound hand and foot on the cross of whatever pain has finally claimed them. Here's what we do, Tintoretto says, we who live on this earth, who watch from the sidelines. Some of us ride fancy horses, pause a moment, gape in horror, then gallop away. Some of us are poor, are on foot. We too stare, we too leave, but more slowly, one step at a time, looking back in fear, we can't help ourselves, such suffering. Some of us point with our right hand. We are saying, look, but our heads are turned away. We know we need to see what the world is doing to one of its own, but we can't bear to really look. Some of us hide in dark corners, the ones who have cards and dice, bottles that are almost empty, guide some of us through the darkness. For us, there is nothing to see, nothing to look at. All suffering is a distant smear of paint, beautiful in its way. There are always a few among us who gather at the foot of suffering. The humble ones, usually the women, the mothers, the ones who love not because it is right, but because they must. In this collapse of women in beautiful robes, next to two men who believed in him, in this collapse called grief, in this sorrow beyond endurance that is, in the name of love endured, in this collapse of the faithful onto bare earth, begins what Tintoretto sees as the only piece that is worth painting, the one that lives like this, sprawled at the feet of suffering. It's the rest of us who sadden Tintoretto. How busy the painting is with all the ways there are to miss the point of our lives in the face of such incessant, unceasing mortalities. There is no justice such suffering could possibly serve. And far in the background, one ghostly figure standing by herself on the left, surely a signature to all the rest a pure creature of imagination, solitary in her flickering, insubstantial body, blessed by the absence of life and the absence of death. Well, that's one part of Italy, one, one experience of Italy. And this is another one. Late, later, latest. If I stood like this each evening near nightfall, stood silent in June next to this olive tree, if I could breathe in time to its breathing, to the in of fading light, the out of oncoming darkness, 
What fear could death then hold for me? January 1st, the beach. The daughter wears a long t-shirt. She's four at most, in search of the shallowest wetness she can find. She already knows no and careful now. She already believes the warning about bad, a bad world, a wave on top of a shark, on top of an over-your-head mindless tangle of salt water and sea wind and going down forever. The whole point of the game is to hold a plastic bucket as a prop and skip to the edge of the world as she knows it. Her older brother is short-haired, pale, intense. He's just too busy to waste time on her. His work, to order the most excellent and perfect shells to come toward him out of the surf. She would scoop them up in indiscriminate fistfuls. His passion is for the perfect glistening shape, wet and gasping for air, like a face under tears. One at a time, as if shelving expensive delicacies, he places them in his pail. Mother's butt is on the blanket, her toes dug in under shells and sand. Her wandering glance refuses all loyalty. She looks from magazine to horizon, spends more time eyeing her nails carefully than watching her children. The delicious sag of her body says it all. She's on this beach for the laziness. Let him do it this time, the first child watch of the day, of the year. And he does do it. The husband and father stands behind his fishing bowl pole, not watching the lines for fish at all, instead tracking the t-shirt enveloped four-year-old and the serious boy of 10, the pole is his prop, and he holds it towards the water like an offering. He keeps jerking his head back and forth as if trying to look in all directions at once. It's how his whole body keeps stumbling against the surrounding air that tells me this trembling is unending. It goes where he goes. It is his only home. The fishing pole shakes in his hand, and his hand shakes against the bulky, unstable shore of his body. At night, he must stare at the place where darkness pools on the bedroom ceiling. Does his wife just lie beside him, her stillness a kind of reproach? His right hand on her left, working the space between his body and hers? Or does it matter? As long as their skins shine together in the velvet clasp of flesh against flesh. When the fish strikes, not one of us is ready. The woman jumps to her feet. The girl shrieks as she runs towards her father. The boy lets his pail fall, and all of us watch the man at the slippery task of bringing it in. It's a beauty, too, silver, huge, flailing away at the universe of air and light. In the moment of surprise, as the fish leaps, the man's neck forgets to shake or jump. He grows as still as a concert hall in the long moment after the last note falls into silence. And everything is solved momentarily before the applause. It is time now for me to go home. The show is over. The family on the beach stays behind. They have their fish and their day at the shore before them. Later, I will go to the grocery store 
where the young woman works whose baby died. She decided to stay in this small town by the sea. That way I'll always know the names of the streets where he would have walked, she said once when I was leaving with my milk and bread. Thank you for listening, she said as I left, as if her grief and her love were things she'd owed me, a kind of debt. On this cloudy May day, I keep thinking, maybe June is what I need to make me happy. those others. We lived at the end of an empire. Sometimes we gathered in huge auditoriums and tried to understand. Our shame did not save us, nor our sadness redeem us, as we came to understand how others far into the future would look back at us, shaking their heads. We hoped in sorrow, more likely anger. I wrote that poem in 2011, but it still seems to be appropriate. It's a new one, greed. I take what I can get from the time that I have left. A grasping way to live, I know, but it's what I've got. In the daytime, cicadas, at night, crickets and tree frogs, late summer poppies, more orange than red. I drink from the ancient fountain that carries water down from the ancient mountain. I sit on a stone ledge waiting for the woman I love. I knead and knead and knead, pine needles strewn all over the grass, smelling of sunlight and sacrifice as if burned at the altar. The grass itself, the grandfather and grandmother each pushing a stroller, the happiness of a duty gladly assumed. Poem, don't abandon me to what I already know. I'm like an empty stroller in search of its child. Are the mother-to-be of God being told by Fra Angelico's angel, I've got some good news and some bad news. <laughs> it's a sickness to be her, to be struck dumb with sacredness to know you cannot manage such a thing without more pain than can be borne, and yet you will bear it, because that's what we do. I'm that boy hiding under the lilac bush behind the clothesline in the dusty summer shadow. Someone keeps calling me in a loud voice, someone desperate for me to come home right now. This poem's called, What It's Like Here. It was nothing unusual, just a woman bare knuckled on a cold day pushing an empty grocery cart up university toward hell. You see it all the time on this planet of theirs. I had been to what they call a movie, 
and I was what they call happy. As you know, fate has given me a wife beloved to me. Yes, beloved is a thing they understand. Right now, she's playing come with the dog while I write this report. Sometimes she says to me, you are really from another planet. <laughs> Sorry, I almost lost it there. I just hold my tongue. There is hell around every corner here. There are people who are paid well to ruin the lives of others. There are people strapped down to chairs, then a button is pushed, smoke rises sometimes off their bodies before they die. I do not tell you this to shock you, but because you need to know there are planets where such things happen. Even so, there is happiness of a kind you would recognize. Right now there is snow, a thing that divides itself up into many pieces, then falls from the sky until all ugliness is covered. Beautiful day, isn't it, people say, and it's not a question. My question is, where do I go from here? What do you want of me? Why was I born on this planet? You'll want to know, did I stop and help the lady? I did not. And you'll want to know, what does beloved mean, if not that? I don't know. I only breathe one breath at a time. Not like you, who breathe so many lives at once. We drove home, my beloved and I. The movie, it was called Men of Honor, a kind of dream of how things should be. We didn't like it. Nothing about it rang true. But we held hands anyway, then went out into the bare-knuckled cold described above. Twenty questions. Did I forget to look at the sky this morning when I first woke up? Did I miss the willow tree, the white gravel road that goes up from the cemetery, but to where? In the abandoned house on the hill, did it get even a moment? Did I notice the small clouds so slowly moving away? And did I think of the right hand of God? What if it is a slow cloud descending on earth as rain, as snow, as shade? Don't you think I should move on to the mop, how it just sits there, too often unused, in the stolen rose on its stem? Why would I write a poem without one? Wouldn't it be wrong not to mention joy, sadness, its sleepy-eyed twin? If I'd caught the boat to Mykonos that time when I was 19, would the moon have risen out of the sea and shone on my life so clearly I would have loved it just as it was? Is the boat still in the harbor pointing in the direction of the open sea? Am I still 19, going in or going out? Can I let the tide make of me what it must? Did I already ask that? I just kind of want to keep looking at you all. <laughs> I'll take my glasses off for a second. Poetry. Yeah. <laughs> and now a little advice from the wise poet, 
be careful or your fears will chase off the red-winged blackbirds who live in the tall grasses by the path near the fake dairy. You will be so alone. Life, a disappearance. One, weren't the four black smokestacks a part of it? And the rainy wind blowing birds back and forth and the light coming on toward nightfall as beautiful as beautiful could be. Weren't the October leaves? Wasn't there first the slow touching and then the urgent? But oh, those leaves to answer your question about why I've spent my life writing poetry. Their strange smell of rot and spice. It takes a whole lifetime, after all, to acquire the nose for it. Too. And the rainy wind blowing birds back and forth, and the light as beautiful could be. Wasn't there first the slow touching to answer your question? Writing poetry, it takes a whole lifetime after all. Three, as beautiful could be. Wasn't there first the slow touching, rot and spice to answer your question? Four, weren't they October leaves? coming on toward nightfall as beautiful writing poetry. Five, it takes a whole lifetime after all. So the rest of these poems I'm gonna read are new poems, newish poems. All this love. I don't know anymore where I'm going with all this love. It's ridiculous to be so old and so in love with sun rise. I mean the words sun and rise. Cough drops, sound so horribly unpromising, but still consider the suck and subtle burn of them, the pleasure in letting sweetness have its way, your throat a coat channeled of letting go, like Broadway and broom, a corner known to all, so very old. And sometimes I go into Starbucks there just to see the barista look at me, a little flirty under her purple eyelids and lips all plumb with gloss and say, of all things, my name, Jim, oh, Jim, oh, such a name. <laughs> Unknown. <t> <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> Unknown to all, except for her and a few thousand birds that I've seen and loved, truly loved, Two shining wings at a time, Broadway and Broom, wheeling north and east toward the river, crying out as they do, my birds. And it's just a little frightening to be this clueless about love in the Broom and Broadway Starbucks. As I look down at the dead boy in the paper, washed ashore, someone inside me standing up for a better view, seeing the sea off Lesbos, where the boats bleed out too far from shore. And some love has no home at all, no survivors under four, no survivors over 70. It's ridiculous to be so old, to still say sunrise, sunset, lost at sea and salt over all, because this is the way love works. Lost at sea means lost at sea.
milk and beans. Someone at the next table says, but he's fucking 70 years old. The table away, I smile, my silent fucking smile. <laughs> Across the way, they are making a stage set, as they do every morning at 7 AM. I see palm trees and two crossed swords. A desert is implied, an oasis. It is time once again to begin. Passing my face in the mirror, I raise one eyebrow, you devil, you, then head out to buy the milk and beans. This is a poem with my teacher, John Berryman, in mind. Driving the river road past the bridge where all those years ago my teacher jumped. Tonight, fog, a warm wind, people with umbrellas hurrying from one place to the next. So this next poem is called uh, Be Them Now. And it's got a little heading under the title, June 17th, 2015, Charleston, South Carolina, Venice, Italy, uh, was the uh, day that nine African-Americans were killed in that mass shooting at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston. I happened to be in Venice on that day and was loving being in Venice and picked up the newspaper <coughs> and read this story. Be them now. Be an earthworm pushing the dirt around on an island. Be those boys playing volleyball, spike and shout. Drop to your knee when they drop to their knees. Pound the red earth, then fall laughing on your back. Now be the man in the fedora leaning on his cane. You see the stillness at the center of the universe? Be the ragged pines at the edge of the sea, the dead mother calling out inside you. Be him again the young man you were in 1970, standing near barbed wire. Your friend said, no matter how long you live, you will always be white. Just be the whole damn day falling into night. Be them now, the sea, the mountains, the locusts, the lagoon, the pine needles growing, the pine needles strewn, the privileged one, the boats, the dogs, the light shadowed, the light bare, the labor of the man pushing the cart filled with dirty sheets, the silver foil matted in the grass, the three cypresses, the ticket booth, knowing you will be shot, knowing you will be the one after next, knowing you will be next, knowing it is now. Be the locusts, be the locusts, be the locusts. One bench over a man with his head in his hands cries out, rapido, 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 ever louder in the midst of this quiet, these dusky leaves we are pleased to call beauty, these overarching trees. Be everyone and everything, the sky full of lightning, the mother nursing by the lagoon, that soldier with an ornamental sword, a building in ruins, city half disappeared in clouded moonlight. Be those trees darkened with twilight, or are they shrouds? Be the baby dazed with milk, be the shawl shielding the mother's breasts. Two dogs lie panting in the grass. Be the next vaporetto approaching, motor slowing, almost here now. 
Be now a breathing son about to step on deck. Be a spared daughter. Be them now, the ones who sail away. I have a long history of writing poems about ambulances. I know it doesn't sound like a very cheery uh, topic, but really there's something about them that I find uh, very moving and sort of like the, you know, in in, when you meditate, sometimes they ring a bell to kind of remind you to put thinking about what you're going to have for dinner later or something like that. I think when I hear the ambulance, uh, I get that's, it's that kind of bell for me. What helps? Someone sick is being carried away very fast in an ambulance, while two girls in the park sit in sunlight combing each other's hair. Thinking of myself as an instrument badly played by a world still learning the basic chord structure helps. This one I haven't come up with a title for yet. No, I didn't move the instruction manual for your new video camera. <laughs> no, I didn't touch the blueberries. And I certainly didn't move the finial, whatever that is. Not even a single inch. No, I didn't hide the granola, nor did I chop up the headboard of the bed for firewood. No, I didn't sell the apartment and forget to tell you. I certainly did not sneak trans fats into the rice and beans. But yes, it was me who did allow the puppy onto the living room couch, sitting there now demanding from both of us the same thing, love undying. Okay, two more, also known as. If you are more close to the dying than you would like to be, and slowness begins to redefine the idea of difficulty, into something you would much rather take a pass on, then it is time for the sky to grow larger than the earth, than the sea even. You need to go to that place where your story is seriously quiet. Nothing in it counts compared to the things sky calls out to, birds, clouds, the occasional cypress that has reached beyond itself. You could call it a kind of waiting, and that would be fair. There is a green bench in the sky, a corner of heaven, you could say. And there, I can sit in the shade and watch the grandfather and grandson walk by, hand in hand. The little one makes the older one laugh again and again. And that is the way it works in heaven, also known as going home, also known as getting over yourself. Okay, thank you all so much for coming. This is my last poem, and uh, I, I just so really do so appreciate you being here. Fear and Love. I wish I could make the argument that a river and a sunset plus a certain amount of calm looking away from the ego are enough. But whatever comes next must include tents in the parking lot, that homeless camp on the way to the airport, and the hole in your cheek from the cancer removed yesterday. I said last night in the few seconds before I fell asleep, you do realize, don't you, everything is falling apart. You said, okay, I'll try to keep that in mind.
And now it is starting to be late again, just like every other night during the last 75 years. Fear and love, he said, my friend, in an impromptu speech at his 65th birthday party, a surprise. We all live caught between fear and love. He tried to smile as he spoke, then sat down. Yesterday, you saw the moon from the operating table where they were about to cut you. Look, you demanded, and the surgeon bent and turned to see it from your angle, knife in hand. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Have I got answers for your questions? Don't leave. We've got questions now. You're going to miss the good part. Anybody have any questions? <laughs> yes. No, he put his own name on them. <laughs> and there are little notes saying with which magazines he submitted them to. <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs> yes, Jim. Your poems, they've been around for a long time. I've read those, we love your poems, and, we, and, I, and I read your lovely essays on your website. The one question you didn't address, and I've been curious about, at some point you decided to be a poet and you stayed with it. When did that start? How did that happen? That you said, I'm going to do that versus being a welder or a, or a buster. <laughs> well, you're all very lucky I did not become a welder. <laughs> Your houses would be. Um, well, it's sort of a process of elimination. I kind of always knew I wanted to be a writer. My grandmother was a writer. I liked to write. It was something you could do alone. People didn't bother you. Uh, you know, I was reasonably good at it, not particularly great. So I was trying to write all kinds of stuff, stories and novels. And uh, finally, uh, uh, I, I was kind of in, like in high school, I, got, I loved reading Lawrence Ferlinghetti. It didn't still occur to me really to write poetry. But then uh, in college, I had a sort of uh, interruption of plot and uh, left the college where I was going to school, went to another place, was completely confused in my own, left because I'd fallen in love with my, my uh, roommate's girlfriend. And so it seemed like the mature thing to do would be to, to leave. And uh, <laughs> so I did. And, but I went into a bookstore down in Norm Norman, Oklahoma, where I ended up and, and was just looking at books because I like books and pulled a book off the shelf. And it was a book by Kenneth Rexroth, who is a great poet. Uh, I'm sure many of you know his work. And he much older than me and much smarter in every way. And, but writing poems about sort of the same kind of experience that I had just gone through, like a uh, crisis of the heart, you could say. And it was really smart, and it was really helpful. And I sat on the floor of that bookstore and just read through the whole book. And that was the point when I really started writing poetry. So it's pretty late. Lots of people start when they're quite young. But I was in college. So. Anything else? Any, any non-Lenfesty-related questions? Yeah. <laughs> Are you heartened by the fact that there seems to be a lot of poetry being written, lots of different kinds of poetry? 
Am I heartened by the fact that a lot of poetry is getting written these days? Yes, and that a lot of people seem to be more interested than yes. they have been for quite yeah. a while. I'm, I'm completely heartened by it and kind of amazed, to tell you the truth. Uh, it's mostly uh, younger poets and younger people reading the poems. And, it, you know, it's a desperate time. And in desperate times, people do turn to poetry. That's why you get great poetry coming out of countries that have had desperate histories, Poland, Russia, Chile, other places. Well, we're going through our moment, and the young poets are rising to that moment. And I love it. It's great. Uh, one guy in a bookstore told me, uh, who runs a bookstore, he said, well, I never used to really carry much poetry. Sorry, he said. Uh, but uh, it's really changed now, because people really want poetry. So yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty wonderful. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, yes. Can you uh, talk about how long it takes you to write a poem and how much rewriting you do? Some poems don't take any time at all. It's a few seconds. Other poems, like the long poem I read about Venice and Charleston, took years in the sense that I'd written some of that material before the event in Charleston mm -hmm. happened. Um, I mean, I, I wrote a poem about my mother dying that took many, many years. And then uh, uh, lots of poems. Sometimes I'll set myself the task of writing 15 or 20 poems a day. So if you guys aren't doing that, at least you're, <laughs> I don't know, that's probably not much hope for you. <laughs> Needless to say, most of them are very good. But, uh, but I, I do like the process of writing, and so I'll write quickly. And, and then other, now, at this point in my life, I'm writing more slowly. Uh, so some of these poems that I read tonight are poems that I've been working on quite a long while. A long while being maybe a year or, or longer even. Yeah. Hi, thanks so much for your reading. You're and welcome. For your work. Um, can you talk a little bit about the writers whose work you love and who you're reading right now? There's so many writers that I love. Uh, I've been rereading a, a wonderful Polish poet, Julia Hartwig, recently. I really recommend her. She has two books in English. Uh, she just is, she's pretty straightforward, and uh, she's been, she went through everything, through the Nazis, through the communist occupation. Her husband was killed, he had been in the army, and she, she just has an indomitable, beautiful spirit. So I've been, I've been reading her a lot. Uh, who else have I been reading? I've been reading Ross Gay's new book, which is really fun, The Book of the Lights. Uh, how a poet can be that happy, I do not know, but more power to him. Wonder, it's a wonderful book. I just, I read so much all the time. Um, I'm trying to think who I, who I brought with me. I've been reading the Greek poet again, Yanis Ritsos, whom I love. I, I like to read poets from other countries and other cultures. Somehow it's freeing for me. Uh, it, it, makes, it makes the universe feel larger to me. So I, I welcome those poets. Uh, Otto Lamone I've been reading recently, so good. There's so many poets, yeah, yeah. If I left a poet out that you love, I'm probably reading that person as well. <laughs> Do you study other languages? Other than what? <laughs> no, I, not really. Uh, I, I sort of sp kind of speak Italian uh, a little bit after going to Italy for many, many years, but not very well. I wish I did. I'm not good at languages. And um, so that's just the fact of the matter. And I, I don't like speaking it so badly that people look at you and wince. <laughs> you know, and even Italians who are the kindest, most forgiving people in the world look at me sometimes like they might just have to throw up. You know, they're, <laughs> they're trying so hard to s see what it is I'm saying, you know. 
And then sometimes you end up saying really unfortunate things by mistake. <laughs> like once, uh, I can't remember if it was me. No, stop, Joanne says. Okay, any other questions? <laughs> I could tell you many stories. But other questions? Yeah, there's somebody up in the back. Thanks for your great reading, Jim. Thank you. Um, your work amazes me, especially the poems that you wrote about your mother and mm. her passing. And I'm wondering, how did you get in that space where you could put words to it? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I, I really feel like you're given certain topics if you're a poet, depending on a ton of different things. You know, your age, your race, your, I don't know, whatever. Your, the things that are given to you that you feel are yours. And for some reason, and I don't know why, uh, my mother is, has always been that person for me. When I, my very first book, I have several poems to her. Even, you know, this week I'm writing poems that are about her. So it's not like, how do I get into the space? But it's more like, how can I get away from the space? <laughs> but I know whenever she enters a poem that something important is happening. And so I let her in, you know. I, I really can't explain it. I'm sure a therapist would have fun uh, talking about it and in fact one has had fun talking about it uh, but uh, it's just it's just I can't stay away from it and there are a few other things like that but but she's probably the most the singular thing that most uh, calls me back in, in poetry yeah uh, well early morning tends to work the best uh, but, uh, it, you know, depending on my schedule and what else I'm doing, I can really write any time of day. Um, I'd say I tend to do more revision type work in the afternoon. I don't work in the evening very much. Um, so morning, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How'd you like having that dog in the poem? Yeah, <laughs> love, always love that. Um, I'm curious to know how your poems differ or your inspiration differs when you're here in Min Minneapolis versus when you're in Spoleto. Mm, that's a very good question. Very good question. I don't know if I can really answer it. I, I write everywhere, wherever I am, but when I'm in Italy, I feel like there's less interference, uh, fewer things getting in the way between myself and the writing. And there's something about being surrounded by a culture which is so ancient and so many people have died. I mean, every street you walk down, there's a memorial to somebody. And you just, uh, after a while, you know, it's like I wrote in that one poem, which I, which I wrote in Italy, you know, get over yourself. It's sort of like there's a depth and uh, a resonance um, and then there's just beauty, you know, raw, unfiltered, amazing, challenging beauty. What do you do with it if you're a, if you're a Scottish, Irish, English guy like me? You know, what do you do with walking down the street and seeing all of this redolent world? You know, it, it affected me that way the first time I went, and it still affects me that way. So I feel kind of kind of humble there in a way and uh, a little lonely sometimes um, but in a deeper way very happy and 
It's also a good place for me to revise poems because I, I get quieter there and more, I'm more able to, 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 I'm able to go deeper, I think. So I think those are some of the things, yeah. Oh, we're not gonna stop now. No. <laughs> Thank you very much, I appreciate it. Thank you, Jim, so much for the beauty of your words um, in the English language, which you do not mangle, and um, for making the grief of our world more bearable. Um, it is such an honor and a privilege for us at the Friends of the Libraries to have you here as a speaker, so thank you so much. Um, I felt... Um, while I was listening to him, that I was further into happiness than I could stand to go. So there you go. <laughs> My name is Margaret Telfer, and I'm the chair of the board of the Friends of the University Libraries, which is a great organization. And as Wendy said, you should be a member because we have wonderful events like this all year long. Um, our final event of this season um, of the Friends Forum will be our annual celebration and our guest there will be David Ferreo, who is the 10th US United States archivist. And he's responsible for preserving everything from the Declaration of Independence to someone's tweets and all the presidential libraries. <laughs> it will be a wonderful program, which we always have. It's, it's a great dinner as well over at McNamara Hall. And as always at Friends events, you'll have memorable conversations with the interesting people who show up. So please become a friend and come to our events. Uh, we'd love to have you there. Uh, please join us. There are refreshments in the atrium. Jim's books are available for purchase, and he'll be signing them. Um, and Jim, if you want to go out um, now before you get caught by the crowd. <laughs> Because <laughs> everyone here wants to hug you. <laughs> Jim, alone again, on the road again. <laughs> and go to the table. Thanks. <laughs> I see lots of wonderful poets here, so you guys all know the drill. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs>